this going to work? Will this work? All right, fantastic. I, I, put, I put down my gizmo somewhere, and I don't know where I put it. So I'm going to go with wires this morning. All right, let's get into it. Happy Pentecost, everybody. Yes, Pentecost Sunday, an important day in the church calendar. We began our look into Pentecost last Sunday. We said we we're going to take two weeks to look at it this, this time around, and so that's where we are. So this is an um, important day on the church calendar, which kind of raises the question, okay, why? Why is, this, why is Pentecost such a big deal? Um, and I don't know that I'm going to, I mean, I don't pretend to be able to answer that question um, ever entirely, but certainly not today in one single um, sermon. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try to talk a little bit about the significance uh, of Pentecost. And so, but to start, I mean, let's just start with, with the, the account itself. Acts chapter 2, Luke tells us a story. So just again, for some context, you know, Luke begins um, his work that we call the book of Acts. Uh, Luke, Luke chapter 1, among other things, gives us the, the, the moment of the ascension. We looked at a couple of um, weeks ago. And then he flows right into this account uh, of Pentecost. Here we go, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly they came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who, speak, who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? That's a question. But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. <laughs> that just gives you an idea of what a wild scene it was. Some reasonable commentator, onlooker, they're filled with new wine. What does this mean? That's our, that's our question, the question we're going to deal with uh, this morning. But let's read a little bit further, and then we'll, we'll come back. Uh, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. <laughs> Wait till the sixth or seventh hour, <clears throat> I guess. I'm not sure what to take from that. Uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now he's referencing the ancient prophet Joel, deep, rich in Jewish history. They would all be familiar with this. 
from the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. That is Pentecost, at least the intro to it. The story goes on from there. For most people, if the word Pentecost is familiar at all, at least in our culture, uh, the term is probably somehow uh, associated with the Pentecostal denomination of the Christian faith. Um, and in that sense, if that's your frame of reference, then the, the word Pentecost or Pentecost, you know, it might represent some of the uniquenesses of that particular schism of the Christian faith, maybe about rules about makeup or no makeup or, you know, you know, all those kinds of rules, or maybe in the Appalachians handling snakes. I mean, whatever that might uh, constitute. Um, or maybe the Christian TV, you know, Pentecostals on Christian TV, whatever. Uh, but the point of all that is to say, when we use the word Pentecost in this context, this is the meaning for us as Christians. This is the launch of the Jesus revolution. It is the beginning of the mission of the church on the day of Pentecost that we look back to in Acts chapter 2. And so I said all that to say, in that sense, um, all Christians are Pentecostals. We all derive our origin from this moment, Acts chapter 2. This is the launch point of the movement that originally, uh, 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 that eventually spread around the world throughout time um, through the Apostle Paul, the Apostles, and folks after that. This is where we all get our history from the day of Pentecost. And so, in that sense, we are all Pentecostal. It is, this is our origin. Now, some history. You'll notice that even before this was a famous day in the history of the church, um, Luke says the day of Pentecost had arrived. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to Pentecost as a part of rich Jewish history. So it's important, I think, for us to do a little bit of background for what is the day of Pentecost in Jewish tradition, in the Jewish um, pattern. Well, Pentecost was an annual observance, a feast, came around once a year, every year. In Jewish tradition and it was celebrated 50 days after Passover every year um, by this time Pentecost had become in, at least in part kind of an agricultural event in terms of how it was uh, uh, recognized how Pentecost was observed there was a, an agricultural uh, component farmers would bring their you know first fruits from their fields and so on but for first century Jewish people the meaning of Pentecost goes deeper than an agriculture, you know, presentation to God of, of agricultural um, first fruits. It comes from the story of the Exodus, right? So Passover commemorates the time when, you know, when Pharaoh's will finally broke down and he, uh, you know, so the after the the the, um, uh, the Passover lamb was, was slaughtered and the next morning to wake up and, the, you know, there's all this upheaval and carnage around throughout the whole region of Egypt. And so Pharaoh, you know, the... The children of Israel escape out of Egypt. That's Passover. Fifty days later, this whole group arrives at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain, receives the law from God, encapsulated in the, in the Ten Commandments, and comes down. That is Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And so this repeated pattern 
of recognizing year after year Passover and then 50 days later Pentecost becomes ensconced, galvanized in Jewish tradition. And so that's what's going on. That's why all these Jewish uh, believers are in Jerusalem for this day, what we call Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And so that's a little bit of the history. So so Mount Sinai, Moses, the first Pentecost, if you will, God gives the law and says, okay, you know, these are the these are the treasured commands that are going to instruct you in how it is that you're to be my people throughout the world, transforming the world into what it is I've called the world to be. And we know that the story you know, goes on, and though there were some bright moments in the history of those of the people of Israel, for the most part, you know, I mean, just to be honest, not to slam anybody, but for the most part, they had dropped the ball, right? Just like the rest of the human race, you know, the people who God gave the solution to were also infected with the problem, we might say. So that's the big, giant story. And so, this is not merely a commemoration of the events at Mount Sinai. This is actually what we find in Acts chapter two. I'm going to make the case here briefly um, that this is actually a recreation of the events at Sinai, but with some very important differences. Think about it. Moses, Mount Sinai, there's a loud sound, there's wind, there's fire. In the Exodus event, that Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain and comes down with the law. In the book of Acts, the event, Acts chapter 2, Jesus, as Luke has just told us, Jesus has ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1. And then, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit himself descends and fills each person with the very life and breath of God. Which is exactly how the ancient Hebrew prophet Jeremiah predicted that God would eventually do. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I'll make a new covenant with people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more wow so again compare and contrast back to Mount Sinai the Pentecost of Exodus let's call it this is the moment when God constituted his people as his people and he did so by giving them what we call The law, these written instructions for how it is that they were to conduct their lives. But now, Acts chapter 2, here in the upper room in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, the Pentecost of the book of Acts, God is once again now reconstituting his people. So we have a similarity. But this time, by giving them, us, his very own spirit. Now, this time, God is moving in. He is breathing his own life into his people and making them his own people, formed through Christ, but now inhabited by the very Spirit of God. In Exodus, if you go back and you read the story, Mount Sinai, Moses, you'll find that God says his intent 
for that whole deal. His intent was to make his people into a kingdom of priests, of people who would announce and declare and represent and embody the loving rule of God into the world. And of course, as I said before, there were some high points, but generally speaking, just like the rest of humanity, they had dropped the ball. Here in the book of Acts on Mount Zion, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, God's intent remains the same once again. He is establishing a kingdom of priests who will declare, announce, and embody his wise and loving rule and reign in the world. But now, with a very important difference. Back on Sinai, it was through a written word. In that case, written on stone. This time, he is doing so through an inhabiting, through an indwelling, taking up residence within his own people, within his ecclesia, his community called the church, both individually and corporately. That's Pentecost. That's the connection with, of Acts, between Acts chapter 2 and Moses and Mount Sinai. So what do we make of this? What do we make of Pentecost here and now for us today? Well, I want to just do two sort of general observations, and then we'll get to some more specific. Um, first of all, and I've pointed this out before, but I want to say that as English readers, um, we, we miss out on some, mm, something, I think, well, enriching that Jewish um, readers of the Bible, well, and even Greek readers of the Bible, um, get led in on without even necessarily trying. Um, and that is, you know, we, when we talk about spirit, that word spirit, you know, it carries in different contexts. It means, you know, all kinds of different things in terms of its connotations. You know what I'm saying? Whether you're talking about, you know, like, you know, I don't know, spirit as in Halloween or spirit as in uh, a pub. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of uses of the word spirit. But for Jewish readers of the Bible and for Greek readers of the Bible, but I'll stick with, with the, the Hebrew side, um, the word is ruah. That's translated spirit. And it, it means wind or breath. And so for a... For a, let's just again stick with Jewish reader of scripture, every time they encounter um, God described as what we would call spirit in English, they're encountering the word ruah, the breath of God. And so I say that to say that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the breath of God. We're talking about the life of God. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. Now, what are some, what do we make of that? Well, uh, lots of things, but I will say this. Everything that we're learning about God, about the nature of God, the character of God, the goodness of God, then, is applied, and rightly so, to the personality and the nature of the Holy Spirit, right? So, we're learning that God is faithful, forgiving, merciful, loving, creative, and kind. He's a healer. He's a reconciler, defender of the weak, comforter, an embracer of the ostracized. I mean, just on and on you go. He's gracious beyond our imagination. His, his one-sided, unprovoked grace is inexhaustible. 
on and on we could go. And as we're talking like that, thinking like that about the nature and character of God, guess what? We are simultaneously characterizing the nature of the Holy Spirit. He is the breath of God. And so all that to say, please don't freak out over the word spirit in his designation. You know, he's not creepy. It's not spooky. This is the breath of God. And so when it, by the way, when it comes to this understanding of what we mean when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, it suddenly becomes natural if you want and you can, I think. And, and I think Luke is inviting us to see here in Acts chapter 2 a loose reconstruction of Genesis chapter 2 where, where God formed the first humans and breathed life into them with his ruach. Do you see the connection there? And so here in Acts chapter 2, Luke is describing the in, in Greek the pneuma, the breath, the wind, the spirit of God being poured out upon the followers of Jesus. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the breath of God. The second, the second thing I want to bring out in terms of naming names, this Holy Spirit, what we've now come to learn to think of as God the Spirit in Trinitarian language, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, if we back up a little bit to John chapter 14, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit an important name. In Greek, it's paraclete. Here's where it comes from, John 14. Jesus says to his followers, he says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper. That's the Greek word paraclete. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. That's another great name for who we're talking about here this morning. Whom the world cannot receive because it never sees him or knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. The Greek word is paraclete, and it has many sort of nuances of meaning, at least potentially depending on the context. And so the Amplified Bible tries to help bring out all those shades of meaning. Here, here's the same passage from the Amplified. He says, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another comforter or counselor or helper or intercessor or advocate. I like that one especially, advocate. A strengthener and a standby. That's the Holy Spirit. That's who we're talking about here. The paraclete, the helper, the comforter, the advocate. He's an advocate. Who's he advocating for? Well, he's advocating for you. He's standing beside you advocating for you. And guess what? He's standing beside the other as well and advocating for the other. He's an advocate. He's an advocate for people. Right? Someone said, God speaks people fluently. He made us. He made all of us. And so the advocate advocates for people. Okay, so now, back to the question. The question asked in the moment by the onlookers in this event. What does this mean? It's a very good question. And uh, Peter, if you keep reading, he's going to preach a sermon that's a pretty good. I mean, you know, I mean, you got to give Peter props. I think it's a pretty good answer. Um and maybe we can look at that another time. But what I thought I would do today is give my answer <laughs> to that question. Um, so what does this mean? What are some of the takeaways of Pentecost? And I think I just have three elements to talk about um, this morning. And the first thing I want to say that may be a bit surprising in terms of the meaning of Pentecost, and it comes from the story as we're going to see, 
But it's important to recognize that Pentecost is this worldly. Pentecost is grounded in the here and now, in the dirt, in the earth, in the flesh, in an embodied implication. We begin by noticing that Luke says that all of this came from heaven. In other words, from heaven to earth. In other words, this is, this is me saying that this event is not seen, at least by the first followers of Jesus, this event is not seen as having given these followers of Jesus some kind of spirituality that's focused on another world that's in the future and out there and disembodied. No, all the evidence is quite the opposite, that this experience for these first followers of Jesus is an event that was all about for them from start to finish. It was about the life of heaven invading earth in a transformative way. And so when you kind of put that into practice in your own life and my own life, I think it's safe to say that we can expect that as Pentecost occurs in us and with us and for us, we can expect to become not less concerned with the here and now, but to become more concerned with the here and now, about the people in this world, about bringing life and healing in this world, right? And I think it's important to say that in a moment like this because there is that kind of thought that's out there. Um, take this world, but give me Jesus. Anybody ever seen that growing up? Anybody besides me seen that song growing up? Take this world, but give me Jesus. What's, what's embedded in that kind of notion? Well, it sounds so pious and it sounds so spiritual, but what's unfortunately, what's unfortunately embedded in that idea is that for someone who's truly spiritual, spiritually minded, this world doesn't matter, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Right? Like this world doesn't matter. See, there's that thread in at least in, a, in my own tradition, and I want to say it's beyond that, but I'll just stick with my own tradition. There's that thread that wants to ne- suggest that true, true spirituality or true piety is kind of like, you know, l- feet lifted up off the ground, head in the clouds, and that's true piety when I really am not concerned about the affairs of this world. Not so with the earliest followers of Jesus who experienced Pentecost. They came away not, uh, not less concerned with their world and the, and the condition of the people in their world, but more so, more concerned about their world and the transformation of it, right? Um, <laughs> uh, this is all set up. If you go back and read uh, Acts from the beginning, one of the vignettes, again, that Luke gives us in Acts chapter 1 is this scene where Jesus, in a cryptic kind of way, or not cryptic, but in a very, very shorthanded kind of way, Jesus says, you know, wait here um, in Jerusalem, and he says, you'll be, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We just sang it a minute ago, but there's this connection, and that's from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this connection between Receiving the Spirit and receiving power. Jesus promises. The disciples ask, the context is, uh, Jesus, are you going to, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, right? Are you going to topple Caesar now? 
and restore, you know, Israel to its glory days, something like under King David, maybe greater. You know, is that, are you fixed to do that now? And Jesus says, you know, the times is not for us to know, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, you know, again, I'm making all kinds of assumptions here, but I don't think it's that far of a stretch. So these disciples now are in Jerusalem. They're in the upper room. They're waiting. They're praying just like Jesus told them to do. We can assume, I think, safely, we can assume, because Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, we can assume that somewhere in their prayer was this request to God, okay, okay, Heavenly Father, just as Jesus promised, uh, would, you, would you give us the Holy Spirit now? We can assume that they requested that. We can also assume, I think, again, an assumption, but I think it's fairly safe. I'll stand behind it. Um, they're thinking power. We want, that, we want that spirit power that Jesus predicted, that Jesus promised. They asked for the spirit. They asked for power. And they might be thinking, you know, yeah. The context of the conversation was taking down Caesar. So we want, we want Caesar kind of power. Maybe it's some kind of spirit power that's like the weapons of Caesar, but more so. Or maybe it's some kind of power from God that's like the wealth of Caesar, but more. Or maybe it's some kind of power from God that's like the coerciveness of Caesar, but more so. Right? Maybe they were thinking, but I guarantee you, it's a, it's a safe bet to, to think in their prayers. They were asking for the Spirit, and they were asking for power. And again, I think we're fairly safe assuming, because it was only just a short time before when at least two of Jesus' disciples were asking to sit at his left hand and his right hand when he comes into his kingdom. So they're thinking Caesar kind of power, but like with divine muscle added to it, right? So that's what power means to us. But what did they actually receive? When the power of the Holy Spirit fell upon them and took up residence in them. And I'm, and I'm saying stick with the story. It's important for us not to back away from what Luke actually says in this story. And let me say it like this. The divine spirit, the spirit of God, enveloped these disciples and took hold of their tongues and took hold of their vocal cords and took hold of their minds and their bodies. And the spirit of the divine gave them the ability to speak the language of the other, those who are not like them, those who are from all over the diaspora. We read the list. I don't know if it's a dozen different ethnicities that are named there. In a word, then, the power that was poured out at Pentecost by the joining together of the Spirit and the bodies of these disciples, the power specifically that was given to them was the power of language. What kind of power is this? 
What kind, I mean, really ask the question, what kind of power is the power of language? Well, for starters, this is not the coercive power of Caesar. No, no, this is, this is the, the, the divine power of intimacy and embrace. Think about it. How does, what is, how does language function among human beings? Language is what connects us together. Of course, there are abuses of language. We're leaving that aside for a moment. But in, in, the, in the highest and best sense, what does language do? Language is what makes two strangers friends. Language is what converts two otherwise isolated human beings into a relationship. And at least potentially an intimate relationship, a deep friendship perhaps. That's, that's what language does. That's how language impacts us. Uh, if there is to be reconciliation in human relationships, it is at least in part fueled by language, a word of reconciliation, a word of forgiveness. Think about it. That's how language functions. Language is what tethers human relationships together. And what, what power did the divine grant to the followers of Jesus on Pentecost? The power of language. To speak across the divide. In that case, ethical divide. Uh, ethnic, the divide of not ethical, that's not the right word. What word am I looking for? I don't know how to put together the eth ethnic. Thank you. Yeah, what's that? The If Georgia was here, she'd be all over me for that one. The adjective form. Um, so that's the, I mean, this is stunning. Just, again, just stick with the story. Right now, I know you, in our minds we want to fast forward and we think power. Yeah, we think about the, the miracles and things that unfold. And I know, but I'm just saying for now, for this moment, for just right now, let's just stick with this. What's the power that was granted at Pentecost? It's the power of language, and language functions to draw and connect people together across the divide of difference, whether that be ethnic or whatever difference across the divide of offense across the divide that's how language functions it tethers human beings together this is the power of pentecost this is the power of the divine embrace of intimacy i said it before over the last few weeks as we talked about the ascension and I gave kind of my recommended if you want to if you want to encapsulate you know the meaning of these big events in the in the Jesus story and if you back all the way up as I said before you back up to Easter in a word Easter tells reminds us that Jesus lives you fast forward a little bit to the ascension the ascension reminds us that Jesus rules and reigns and I said last week or a couple weeks ago that I wasn't quite ready at the time but now I'm ready to give you an encapsulated takeaway for the meaning of Pentecost. If you want to say it in as condensed a way as possible, you might say it like this. Pentecost reminds us that Jesus joins. Jesus embraces. And the nature of this embrace is deeply 
intimately bodily. And that's really the point I want to emphasize at the moment. The embrace of Jesus at Pentecost is a joining of spirit with human flesh. And then by extension, the embrace of Pentecost is a joining together of human being to human being, even across seemingly insurmountable boundaries. And so, Pentecost is very much, and let's may we never ever forget it, Pentecost is very much this worldly. It is very much an embodied reality, both individually and by extension, corporately. Secondly, Pentecost is disruptive. And here we go back to these images of wind and fire that rested on each of them. Wind and fire. These are, these are again, in, in Jewish consciousness, to kind of give the nod to the culture from which these stories emerge. You know, you think about it. If you read what we call the Old Testament, very common for the images of wind and fire to be wrapped up in what we call epiphany accounts. So stories of where the ancient people of God, the Jewish people, encountered a vision of God, whether it be a prophet or maybe a simpler person who encountered a vision of God. Very, very often the, the, uh, the image of wind will be involved in that epiphany story or the image of fire or both, right? And so in that sense, Luke is giving us an account here which is very much a part of that theme, a part of that narrative that this is a God encounter and this, again, at least potentially, and in this case I think we can say the sound of a rushing mighty wind, it's a strong, disruptive kind of image. In other words, this is not a nice, neat, well-groomed spirituality that's being described here. This is a wild and disruptive kind of spirituality that's being described here. This is an untamed spirituality that's being described here. And again, in fact, if you fast forward and allow the story of the book of Acts to kind of play out in your mind, you see, oh yeah, in fact, that's absolutely what happened. These people, not only were their lives disrupted, disrupted, right, they were thoroughly plucked out of their uh, Jewish roots, at least most of them, uh, and, and brought into a whole new world where they had a whole new set of questions. I mean, again, think about, um, uh, well, I mean, the story of the Apostle Paul. You could think, you know, Paul, you could think that Paul had his own Pentecost. That's going to occur in what Acts chapter nine, eight, nine, somewhere, where Paul's going to get knocked off his donkey, right? And you know, he's, and so what happened to Paul? His life was turned upside down because he encountered God, and again in that story. Uh, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and his life is turned upside down. And I know you're grateful for that, and I'm grateful for that. He's the great missionary to the Gentiles, and so we thank God that we're included because of the, the vision of someone like the Apostle Paul. And yet, it was completely disruptive for him, both relationally, culturally, uh, theologically. I mean, this guy had all kinds of work to do because the Holy Spirit completely turned his life upside down. Acts chapter 10, Peter, minding his own business trying to take a nap on the roof of a house, and he has this vision, you know, with this big sheet filled with unclean animals is lowered down in front of him, and, and God speaks to him and says, take and eat. 
And Peter, the good little Jewish boy, looks and says, there's nothing kosher in that whole, in that entire thing. No way. I'm not going to eat an unclean animal. I mean, you know you're religious when you're so religious that you disobey God. Right? I mean, Peter is a committed little Jewish boy. So he refuses. The sheep comes down again. Take and eat. No way. I'm not going to do it. That's not kosher. Comes happens a third time. Take and eat. No way. And God speaks to him and says, man, who are you to call unclean what I've called clean? And then as the story unfolds, we realize that that story is not about food at all. It's not about eating crawfish, thank God. That story is actually about people, right? Because you keep reading and what happens? There's, you know, Peter gets invited to the home of a man named Cornelius, a Gentile man, someone who is on the other side of not only the, the um, ethnic divide, but someone who is on the other side of the kosher divide. I mean, G- Peter, by kosher code, is not supposed to enter into the home of a Gentile. But he does. Why? Because this spirit, the Acts chapter 2, the breath of God, is drawing Peter to do so. And so Cornelius says, okay, give me your spiel. Peter begins to preach. The Holy, this spirit, this spirit who is the breath of God, the desire of God, falls upon Cornelius and his whole household. So we see that from Acts chapter 2, um, you know, it's a moment where, and you're going to read it in Peter's sermon on that original day of Pentecost, he knew that something good was happening. He knew that something extraordinary was happening. He knew that something, um, some shift for the better has happened. But even from Acts chapter 9 and 10, we get the idea that even Peter himself didn't know how good this was. Didn't even know how big this was. Didn't even know how grandiose this was. But the point being, in that way, in, in that sense, it was disruptive for Peter as well. And on and on and on, we can go throughout um, the story in the book of Acts and even in the years since. This is, again, we too are safe to expect that Pentecost also is disruptive in our own lives. And again, I, I think you know this, but I, I, ju- I guess I just need to say, when I say disruptive, I don't mean for the worser. I mean it's disruptive for the better, right? Because this is the nature of, you know, our world as it is, and it's crusty decay on ourselves, the structures and the systems around us. And so in order to move from the current status to the better that is, that our Heavenly Father is calling us to, there's got to be a disruption from what is, right? And that, so it's, it's not always fun, but it is disruptive. It's the breaking in of beautiful, you know. I love it. I don't know who said it, but it resonates with me. You know, it's been very common for a lot of us in our sort of in our rhetoric to say, you know, my life was all messed up and I found Jesus and he put my life together. And the longer you go in this thing, what you find is you, you, you encounter at least as many people, if not more, eventually say, you know, my life was pretty organized and pretty well put together. But then the more I started pursuing my relationship with the divine, he just messed my world all up. You know, and that's what you can expect. That's, that's to be expected when, when the story begins with phrases like the sound of a rushing mighty wind. And cloven tongues of fire. It's safe to take away that, yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be some things that are turned upside down in big ways and in small ways. 
as I, as we engage and embrace Pentecost perpetually. You know, I was thinking about the language and disruption and all that. And uh, I don't know if I can really put this together, but I had this thought. Um, I've been messed. I've been messed with lately. I've been reading. Um, there's an author named Howard Zinn, and uh, he writes. Uh, he's a history writer. His big work is called um, "A People's History of the United States." And if you want to get messed up, read Howard Zinn. It's fantastic, and I mean that again. Same messed up in a good way. And so this is not Howard Zinn's observation, but just in reflection upon reading him and then meditating on on Pentecost. You know, you take this reality that on Pentecost, the Spirit of God indwells the disciples, and they immediately begin to speak the language of the other, speaking the praises of God in the language of the other. Dozens and dozens through other cultures. And then you contrast that with the history of, well, not just the United States, but now I'm thinking the history of the world. And you think about how many cultures throughout history have been overtaken by a more dominant culture and were forced to reject their mother tongue and learn the language of the invaders, whether that language was Latin, whether that language was English, whatever that language was, right? As the world was colonized by the white-skinned, Latin-speaking and English-speaking empires, and indigenous people were forced to reject and deny their mother tongue and learn the language of the dominating imperialists. I mean, that's just history. Again and again and again and again and again. But not only that, man, there's big chunks of history and big chunks of colonialism where the Christians were right in the middle of it. And that's the part I want to focus on for this observation. How ironic is it that our revolution was launched on a day when the spirit of the divine revealed himself by infusing his people with his breath. And the result of that was to speak in the language of the other. And then we could fast forward a handful of centuries. And those very same people who still confess the name of Christ now operate in a very different spirit. Where not only are we unwilling to learn and speak your language, we demand that you speak ours. I'm just telling you, that's how messed up. So, so, so the point is, if we're going to embrace Pentecost, it's going to be disruptive. Because that's the kind of norm that we've inherited. It's going to be disruptive. And then finally, Pentecost, as I've indicated already, Pentecost is always reconciling it says they began to speak in other languages as the spirit enabled them now for some people this remark 
has been boiled down entirely to the phenomenon of speaking in tongues, which can be a controversial conversation. And I just want to say that's unfortunate, I think, for many reasons, but primarily because that whole debate actually confuses the issue and obscures what's really going on here on the day of, on the day of Pentecost. What's going on? This is the Spirit of God revealing himself to be a boundary crosser, a reconciler, a unifier. I want to read it again. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the sound of the wind and the fire and the speaking in other tongues, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, aren't these people Galileans? I mean, they're from the sticks. These people are hicks. How is it that we can hear them all speaking in our own language? And then here's the list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. I count 13. That's what I count them as is. So all these different people. All these regions brought together by the spirit of the, of the divine. He is a boundary crosser. He is a reconciler. This is the nature of this divine spirit. And I just want to say again, just to back up, now referencing what we now think of as theology proper, you know, we speak of God as Trinity. He is, he is a relationship in, its, in, in himself. The Father with the Son and the Spirit. The Son with the Spirit and the Father. The Spirit, whatever, you get the idea. The Trinity. He is perpetual relationship in himself. To say that God is holy is to speak of the relational nature of God. And so from that standpoint, it comes as no surprise that the invasion of the divine is going to be a relational phenomenon. Again, kind of point, counterpoint, back to Sinai. You may remember from that story, um, part of that entire account, Moses goes up the mountain, he's given the law, um, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, right? You may remember the one of the subplots in that story, Moses comes down and finds that the people at the base of the mountain had done the whole golden calf thing and they were worshiping the golden calf and all that and Moses gets angry he throws down the tablets onto the ground and broke them and then he just kind of calls an ultimatum whoever's on the Lord's side comes stand beside me remember that Moses gives that command and all the Levites the descendants of Levi they run to Moses side Moses tells the Levites to get their sword and go through the camp killing everybody. And they do. And the account says that 3,000 people were killed that day. It's a horrible story. It's an awful story. And you may remember the, the Levites, as, the, as the, the history of the Jewish people uh, carries on, the Levites are the priestly class. And this is their ordination with a sword and blood. I mean, this terrible story. Then we come... Again, kind of point, counterpoint to this story in the book of Acts, Pentecost on Mount Zion. And these events in Acts chapter 2 
play out. As I said before, if you keep reading, eventually Peter is going to preach the first sermon of the church, and he's going to tell the Jesus story, and people are going to respond positively. And do you remember how many people Luke tells us were rescued that day? What's the number? 3,000. Luke says 3,000 people were sozoed that day. At the law, at Sinai, with Moses, the law was given, and 3,000 people died. At Pentecost on Mount Zion, the Spirit was given, and 3,000 people were brought to life by the rescuing Ruach of God. Do you think that number is a coincidence? <laughs> no way. And again, the point counterpoint is not lost on the Apostle Paul either. He's going to write this, 2 Corinthians 3. He says, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul knew that reality all too well. He had lived it. He had been the embodiment of the letter that kills when he persecuted Christians. And then he encountered the Holy Spirit, and he became not no longer the persecutor of the Christians, but the one who was willing to endure persecution without retaliation, responding in only love. Why? Because he had encountered the Spirit, the life of God. So you get the idea. I think the idea for us to take away is to, as we commemorate Pentecost, I think the idea for us, just as it is with the other big high point days in this Jesus story is as we observe is not just to observe but to sort of soak in to, to more in this case I think to practice Pentecost and so what I want to leave you with this morning is that when you think about being being a Pentecost person a person who imbibes Pentecost on an ongoing serial basis I think there's three things you can expect one is, you, I think you can expect an increasingly this-worldly perspective, just as the effect of the Holy Spirit's indwelling upon the first followers of Jesus. And I think, thirdly, you can expect some beautiful disruptions in your life and be okay with that. And then, thirdly, I think you can plan on being compelled to be a reconciler to cross boundaries, even unthinkable ones, even scandalous ones, if you were to ask your tribe at certain points. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We bless you. We are grateful for spirit poured out.